Jake, my name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus. My wife uh, suggested that maybe I should give you an update on my hand at the top of this message. Some of you are tired of hearing about it, and I want you to know I'm okay with that. Uh, This is a great time to check the weather app or uh, whatever else you want to do. I won't be offended, but I know a lot of you have been praying for me, and I truly appreciate that. If you didn't know, I cut my hand on my table saw a couple of months ago now, and uh, and things are just progressing uh, awesomely. Um, And I really do attribute that to all of you who have been praying. Some of the dead stuff has come off of my finger, and I can see new stuff underneath, and that is encouraging. So thank you. I also want you to know one highlight of all of this is that um, I pretend to touch my kids with the dead part, and they go nuts about that, and it makes them very obedient to whatever I ask them to do when I threaten them with that. So uh, it's not all bad. You have to look at the bright side sometimes. Hey, we are in the final week of a series that we started four weeks ago called Staying in Love. And if you've been here with us throughout, you know that the truth we've been addressing along the way is that falling in love is easy, but staying in love requires a plan. And if you were here on week one, you might recall that Andy Stanley said, uh, all that is required to fall in love is a pulse. Okay, if you are breathing, you're a candidate for falling in love. Uh, And have you found that to be true in your own life? Love seems to come so easily and so effortlessly at the beginning of a relationship. It burns with white-hot intensity, with little to no effort at all. In fact, I wonder this morning if you'd like to see what white-hot love looks like. Would you like to see that? Check this out. This is, uh, yes. This is my wife, Beth Ann, and a guy she used to date. Uh, That's me standing there, too. And uh, I got to tell you, this is probably 97 or 98. That's right, kids. I was born in the 1900s. And... uh, And we were in college, probably in our very, very early 20s. Beth is maybe 20. I'm probably 21 or so. And uh, I got to tell you, man, we were just so crazy in love for each other. I would wake up thinking about Beth Ann. I wanted to see her. I wanted to be with her. And she loved my baggy jeans and my chain wallet and and my spiky hair. And and, uh, you know what? Just the fact that I had hair, I think she liked that. So, But here's the deal. It takes more than just that initial attraction to stay in love, doesn't it? And so we've been talking about how to get all the way till death do us part with love still intact. And we believe that's possible. We believe that that can actually happen, but it's going to require some intentionality. It requires a plan. So this morning, I'm going to show you the fourth and final part of the plan to stay in love. And it has to do with a decision that most of us make every single day of our lives. And this is something that you did intuitively when you fell in love. You chose the right thing every time without even giving it a thought back then. But as time goes by, we have a tendency to fall out of this way of thinking. And the the choice that I'm referring to, it's highlighted in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. I want to invite you to turn there with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the chairs around you. If you don't own a Bible, I want you to keep one of those as your own. But in 1 Corinthians 13, we find a passage that's often referred to as the love chapter, okay? Uh, it's not like that, actually. But, uh, but if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard this passage 
Uh, it's, the, it's a passage that's very familiar, maybe even if it doesn't spark in your mind immediately. I bet when you hear it, you're going to recognize it. Here's what it says, starting in verse 4. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Now let's pause right there. Up to this point, everything seems fairly self-explanatory, doesn't it? I mean, even if you aren't putting these things into practice, it's not because these are hard concepts to understand. If you're patient with your spouse, that's going to foster love, correct? We all agree on that? I mean, kindness, same thing. Being unkind is the opposite of being loving. We don't disagree with this. If if you're proud, if you're rude, if you're self-centered, these are things that are not going to foster love. We understand this, at least in theory, right? Even if we're not putting these things into practice, we we wouldn't argue with this instruction. But this next verse, verse 7, is the verse I want to focus on this morning. And it's not quite as straightforward as the previous verses. In fact, at the initial reading of verse 7, you might think, wait, do I really believe this? Is this really the way it is? Look at what it says, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The English Standard Version of the Bible says it this way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, just at the initial reading of that, I wonder if some of you are thinking, man, that's that's not the way I see it. That's not the way love played out for me. The kind of love that this verse talks about, I mean, it it believes all things. That, That just sounds naive, doesn't it? Love hopes all things, it endures all things. Maybe you read that and you think, man, not for me it didn't. That's not the way that it played out for me. But I want you to know there's something deeper going on here than maybe what we catch in the first reading. And it has to do with that choice that I spoke of earlier. Because in every relationship, there are two factors that come into play. The first is this. The first factor is our expectations. And our expectations, they're based off of a lot of different things. Like, you know, watching your mom and dad when you were growing up. What did you see as they interacted? What happened in previous relationships that you had? What other life circumstances have you gone through? All kinds of things come into play when we talk about our expectations. But every husband and every wife comes into the relationship with a certain set of expectations. The second factor in every relationship is this. It's behavior. Now, this is the reality of how the other person acts or performs in any given situation. So our our expectations are what we thought they would do. The behavior is what they actually did. And between these two factors, as you can see, there's often a gap. There's a gap between what we expected to happen and then what actually happened. Between the way we thought our spouse would behave and the way they actually behaved. There's a gap between what our spouse said they would do and what they actually did. So maybe it plays out like this. He said he'd take out the garbage, but he just pulled out of the driveway and the trash can is still full. She said she'd be home by 8 to help get the kids in bed, but it's 8.30, she's not home, and the kids are going crazy. 
He said he'd be home in time for supper, but he ended up staying late at work again. She said she'd be responsible with the finances. And I got to tell you, honey, you look nice in that new outfit, but the electric bill is late again. So you see how this works. And oftentimes there's a gap between our expectation and our spouse's actual behavior. But here's what I want you to see this morning. When this gap occurs, we will always choose to fill it with one of two things. We will either assume the worst or we'll believe the best. We assume the worst or we believe the best. And our natural response of how we fill this gap, much like our expectations, is based off of a number of different things. How, how did your mom and dad fill the gap? How was the gap filled in previous relationships? A lot of different things come into play when we, co- when we decide how we're going to fill the gap. But here's the big takeaway from 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. Your response is your responsibility. Your response is your responsibility. Write that down. Because your response to the gap that exists between your expectations and your spouse's behavior is always, always, always your responsibility. It's not a product of what someone else did or didn't do. You may have had every reason to to have the expectations that you had, but when it plays out differently, it is up to you every single time to decide how you're going to fill the gap. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for you to be very honest with yourself this morning and just answer this question. When a gap occurs between the expectations you had and your spouse's behavior, where do you naturally go? Do you naturally default to believing the best or do you automatically assume the worst? And if you honestly don't know the answer to that question, ask your spouse. Okay, not necessarily right now because I have a sermon to preach and this could get a little bit messy. But your spouse knows the answer to that question. They can see it on your face. They can hear it in your voice. They feel it in the way that you interact with them for the rest of the day or, or the rest of the evening or the rest of the week or the month or however long it takes. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this. There is a small percentage of marriages represented in this room today, I hope it's a small percentage, where the issues are beyond just a negative spirit or a bad attitude that has snuck in over time. And maybe you have given your spouse every reason to assume the worst. If that's you and you are sitting there thinking, oh man, I am so glad he's saying this. Now she has to believe me. Now he has to take me back. Listen to me. If you are having an affair, if you are addicted to a substance, if you are abusing your spouse in any way, the problem is not that they are refusing to believe the best. The problem is you, and you need to get help. Do not use my message to bully your spouse or excuse your bad behavior. We have a number of great relationships with fantastic counseling partners, and I would love to make those referrals for you. But if you are sitting there this morning thinking, oh, now he has to, now she has to, this is about them, you have missed the point. This message is about you, okay? Now, I truly hope that's a small percentage in this room today, 
But for the rest, I do believe that what Paul wants us to understand from 1 Corinthians 13 is that people who stay in love, they learn to believe the best every single time. It may not be their natural response. It may not even be the rational response. But it is the response of people who stay in love forever. They learn to believe the best and how to be generous in their explanations for their spouse's behavior. In his book, The One Thing You Need to Know by Marcus Buckingham, uh, Marcus shares some research that was done on happily married couples. And the criteria to be in the study group for this research was that the couples had to have been happily married for at least 10 years. And the researchers wanted to find out what's the common denominator? What is it? What's the one thing it takes to have a happy marriage? Well, when they studied these couples, they fully expected that what they would find out is that the couples had realistic expectations for one another. They had done a previous study on unhappy marriages, and they found that, that those marriages had uh, unhealthy expectations for the spouse. So they figured the, the reverse would be true in this situation. But instead, what they discovered was that these couples also had a very unrealistic view of each other. But it played out differently. Here's what they would do. They would give the husband a test, and they would ask him to rate himself in certain areas. And then they would give his wife the same test about him. And she would rate her spouse higher in every category than he rated himself every time, and vice versa. He would rate her higher than she rated herself. They consistently rated each other higher in every category over and over again. And so the researcher's conclusion from the test was that love truly is a bit blind, that these happy couples did not have a realistic view, but rather they had a generously optimistic view of their spouse. And based off of their study, they offered this advice for having a happy marriage. They said, find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and then believe it. Find the most generous explanation and then believe it. Now listen, I said earlier that this is something that you just did intuitively when you fell in love. We didn't even think about this at the start of the relationship. They did the same thing for you. And, and when your spouse would do something that you didn't expect they would do, isn't it true that instead of thinking something was wrong, you were generous in your explanation, right? So maybe it played out like this. She's not impatient. She's just intense, He's not insensitive, he's just focused, right? We did this intuitively. Happily married couples, couples who stay in love, they never stop finding the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and then believing it. So the question this morning is, is that true of you? When the gap exists, where do you go? Are you generous in your explanation and do you believe the best? Or do you quickly go negative and assume the worst? And I know that some of you are thinking right now, man, if you knew my marriage or if you knew what he did or what she did, hear me clearly on this. I, I know that everyone in here has a story. I know a lot of your stories personally. If you were here last Sunday, you know that I got a little bit overwhelmed by that during the worship time and just looking around the room and knowing what so many of you are going through and the words that we were singing and it didn't seem to line up. Listen, I know I know that there's a story for every single person in this room. But at the end of the day, no matter what that story is, no matter what your spouse did, no matter how wrong they were, the only thing that you can control is you. The only response that you get to control is your own. And your response is your responsibility every single time. 
and I know that some of you probably think it's hopeless, and you've said divorce is not an option, so you're going to stick it out. But it's not fun, and it's not love, and you don't like it when the phone rings and it's her, and maybe you don't like it when the garage door goes up and it's him, and maybe it's just become a cycle of negativity where, where both of you are assuming the worst. And listen, it's easy to do. This is the easy side, the easy way to fill the gap, rather. It's easier to assume the worst because the thing about assuming the worst is you get to be right. In fact, if we were to just be brutally honest here this morning, I bet some of you actually enjoy it when your spouse screws up because you get to, to, to have another chance to be right. And maybe you're keeping a record of wrongs and you're adding to it daily. You know what? I, I told you he'd be late. See, I, I told you she'd spend too much. I knew he wouldn't follow through. I told you so. And some of you are in this cycle and you're looking for it and you love to discover when your spouse is wrong and they maybe love to discover when you're wrong because you love winning the argument. But listen to me, you may win the argument, but you are losing the most important human relationship in your life. And it's your choice every single time what you put in that gap. Now, I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 7 again, and I want you to ask yourself, what is this really calling me to do? What is this really calling me to choose? Paul says this. He starts by saying, love always protects. It always protects. What does love protect? It, it protects the integrity of the relationship. It, it, if, you're, you know, if you're looking for ways to protect, you're looking for ways to keep love alive. I'm not looking for ammunition. I'm not looking to win the argument. I'm looking to protect this relationship and to keep love alive. What else does love do? Love always trusts. Love always trusts. It's looking for that generous explanation, and it's believing the best about your spouse, trusting that even when the odds are against you or against them, that, that things can begin to change, that things can be different, that God can make things new. And then Paul says, love always hopes. Love always hopes. It's hopeful for the best possible explanation. And when I use that word hopeful, I don't mean it in the anxious, sort of fearful kind of way. Like, you know what? I, ho I hope he doesn't mess it up. I hope she doesn't spend all our money. No, this is, is being filled with hope that there is going to be a great explanation. It's not a worry-filled sentiment. It's a strong belief that something good is coming. I have hope in you. I have hope in you. I have hope in us. Love always hopes. And finally this, love always perseveres. And here's what I think we need to understand. Love can be blind without being naive. Love can be blind without being naive. Love can know all of the facts and still choose to persevere. And there may be times when you'll do your best to protect and to trust and to hope and, and, and you just, you find out the worst. You find out that, that it wasn't right. And in that moment, there's going to be some work to do. There's going to be some hard conversations to be had. There might be some pain that you're going to have to work through. But through it all, love chooses to endure. It chooses to persevere. And so I just ask again this morning, what are you choosing have you and your spouse gotten into a cycle where you're assuming the worst about them and they're assuming the worst about you and maybe you've got all kinds of evidence to back it up, but here's the thing. When you choose to assume the worst, you are a participant, a participant in the demise of your relationship, even when it seems justified, even when there's a history. Every time you go there, you contribute to the demise of your marriage. Let me tell you something I believe to be true about your spouse 
I think this is true for just about everybody in the room today. The last thing that your spouse wants to do is to disappoint you. The last thing they want to do is to disappoint you. They may not know how to communicate that. They may not know how to show you that. But I believe that to be true in almost every single case. The last thing they want to do is to disappoint you. But when you assume the worst, what you are communicating in that moment is no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you'll never measure up. You'll never be as good as you ought to be. And in that response, you will push your spouse further and further away. And you may think that the solution lies in just reducing the gap between your expectations and behavior. If he would just do what I expected him to do, if she would just do the things that I expect her to do, that gap would go away and we'd be good to go. Listen, I'm here to tell you this morning, the way you decrease disappointment in your marriage is not to reduce the gap, but to fill the gap with protection to fill the gap with love, to fill the gap with trust and with hope and perseverance, even when every rational thought in your head tells you it's nuts and you're right and they're the one who ought to. When you believe the best, here's what you communicate to your spouse. I love you. I trust you. I believe in you. I desire you. And with that one act, you will begin to break the cycle of negativity in your marriage Relationships that last and relationships that thrive are relationships where couples choose to believe the best. And it's not that those couples don't experience gaps, but instead of using the gap to make my point and to drive you further away, I'm going to use it to bring you closer to me. And the more gaps we experience, the more opportunities I have to tell you I trust you, I love you, I believe in you, I desire you. Here's how Jesus summed this whole thing up in Luke 6, 31. He said, do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And let me ask you this. If you are in a pattern of assuming the worst, how's that working out for you? Is that helping? Like, is that producing that fertile ground where love can grow? Is it bringing about positive change in your relationship? I mean, I know you're right every single time, but is it creating an environment where love can grow? Well, what if you decided to do for him or to do for her what you would like for them to do for you? And as soon as you get that phone call, and as soon as you get home and those trash cans are still on the, tree, the street, and she didn't or she, he didn't or, or, you know, whatever, you make that choice to do for them what you wish they would do for you and you believe the best. Some of you are gonna make that decision maybe even before you walk out of here this morning. Some of you will make it on the ride home today. Some of you will make it tomorrow morning and maybe every morning from here going forward. But what's it gonna be? It's your choice. Will you come up with a generous explanation and believe the best or will you immediately go negative and assume the worst? Couples who stay in love forever are couples who have learned to believe the best and to fill the gap with trust every single time. As we bring this to a close this morning, I want to tell you why I think this is so important. And yes, it's important because we want to have happy, strong, God-honoring marriages. That definitely is part of it. But let me take it one step further. I believe that there will be nothing that speaks louder to our culture about Jesus Christ than our marriages. And we as believers have the opportunity to model this, not because we're any better than other people, 
but because we know that, that we're not better. We're so aware of the fact that, that we were once sinners, forgiven by grace, forgiven by mercy, and we're learning to extend that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness to others. And so it begins when we understand that God made love a verb. When he stepped out of heaven, he sent his son to die for us, and now we have been called to die for our spouse, to put to death our wants and needs. And, and just as Christ loved us and laid himself down for us, we can lay ourselves down for our spouse. And not only did he die, but he modeled what unconditional love is all about. And Jesus submitted to the Father on the cross, and now we have been invited to submit to one another in love. And we have to learn to monitor and to keep an eye on our hearts, because we know that what is in us is going to come out of us. And love grows as we learn to make a decision every single day to fill the gap between expectations and behavior with protection and trust and hope and endurance. Because my goal isn't to win arguments. My goal is to stay in love. And as we learn to do that, perhaps God will use us to raise up a generation of people who will understand love in a different way. And perhaps God will use us to impact our culture as people begin to ask, you know, how is it that you've been able to stay in love? How did you get through that difficult circumstances and come out on the other end still in love? How is it that, that you're so happy? And we're able to say it's not because we're great. It's not because we have this all figured out. It's because of God. It's because of his love for us and what he's done for us and what he's called us to do for one another. Listen, if you're not in love, I hope you fall in love. I hope you fall in deep and I hope you stay there forever. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much, first of all, for just allowing us to address you that way, to be able to come before you as father. And, and I know, Father, that, that it's your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son that allows us to approach you in that intimate, relational way as Father. Lord, for the marriages uh, represented here today that are working, that are thriving, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray you would find us faithful to your word to always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. Lord, I know that there are also relationships here today that are hanging on by a thread. And I pray that today would be a hopeful day for those folks. I, I pray that today would be the day when the cycle of negativity is broken. Lord, I pray for college students and singles who have all of this ahead of them. I pray that they would move into relationships so surrendered to you that they would get this right the first time. And I pray that this generation coming up behind us, Lord, would understand love in a brand new way, that we could impact our culture for you with the love of Jesus Christ displayed in our relationships, displayed in our marriages. And I pray that your grace and your mercy would be the hallmark of all of our relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.